Hello from Austin, and welcome to episode 157 of the National Security Law Podcast. We're brought to you by Harry's Razors. <laughs> just kidding. It's the mattress one. Casper or something. No, I'm just kidding. We don't do ads because we're brought to you by the Robert Strauss Center at the University of Texas. You're welcome. It's Wednesday morning, March 4th, 2020. I'm Bobby Chesney. I'm Steve Vladek. I was not ready for that. <laughs> Crazy Eddie, his prices are insane. insane. <laughs> <laughs> that, that would, if we had a sponsor, it would be Crazy Eddie. Oh, you know what? Uh, maybe that's just it. Like, I kind of like it that we don't have sponsors because yeah. I myself, I listen to a lot of podcasts and... Uh, I try to click through those as fast as I can. Um, but maybe if we had the right sponsor. Like, like, like in, Chico's Bail Bonds? Chico's Bail Bonds. That would be especially appropriate. Um, I could go for like, a, I could do a beer sponsor. If mm. Austin Beer Works wanted to sponsor us, I've I'd, said I'd before, be down Austin Eastsiders, I think, would be a perfect sponsor for this podcast. Um, I could definitely go with an Austin-specific sponsor. So if some, some worthy... Uh, Dell... Basically, this would be a true example of I'd have to genuinely mean it when I'm touting your IPA or your pizza. I'd have to or test. your laptop. Yeah, I'd really want something I can consume and enjoy more than that. Or your or your vacation rentals. There you go. Now you're talking. Send or your it, produce. Send Whole us foods. on the road. We we are the Whole Foods, uh, the, the Amazon Whole Foods podcast. Yeah, if I could I could do that. This is uh, what happens when we record on back to back days. We're we're already loopy. Yeah, it's true. Well, so if you if you didn't. Notice, there's an episode before this this week. We, we posted one yesterday. That was fun. We interviewed General Baker, chief of the uh, the defense side and the military commissions process. So that episode was just yesterday. That's 156. And as we said then, um, we didn't touch the news in that episode. We kicked it over to this episode. So we're back. Episode 157 uh-huh. for the news. Um, and, 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 and news is there. News Th- there is. There is. Um, we, I'm sure, won't be able to resist commenting on the aftermath of Super Tuesday. True. Um, but what we're here to talk about... Including in Texas, where some interesting things happened. Super interesting, yeah. I thought. Yeah, we, we were sort of contested there for once. Um we're, we're t- we have a lot of Trump-landia topics. Um, we've got the Cuccinelli decision on the Vacancies oh, Reform guy. Act. Um, the fun just keeps continuing. I, who knew that succession in office would be such an evergreen topic this year? Uh, we've got, uh, what have we got? Have we, should we touch base on the uh, nomination of, of uh, John Ratcliffe to be the sure. DNI? Okay. Maybe just ch- check in on that. Yep. Um, we have some quarantine updates. From, yeah, from I want to talk about corn. So, so leaving Trumplandia, we want to talk about some uh, further legal dimensions of coronavirus reaction. There's a whole topic of legal topics that are blending both public health uh, measures and then political and policy things that happen because of the panic aspects. And we've previously talked about quarantine law. I want to talk about something else that is sort of a successor to that, and that is restrictions on liberty for people who've been in quarantine and have been cleared, but who now bear the sort of scarlet letter, mm-hmm. I guess the scarlet letter C in this case. Uh, so or it, Q. My, oh, the, ooh, Q for quarantine. But what if they were in isolation? Then it'd be I. That's confusing. Yeah. Let's just go with the, uh, C, the C. The C. Um, my hometown, San Antonio. My home county, Bear County. They've done something. It took me a long time to learn that was Bear. Did you think it was Bexar? You know, there's an X in the middle of it. Like, it's not, it's not, anyway. Well, okay. you can pronounce it Bejar if you want. Um so like, what, like, like what, Tejas, like Tejas means friend. <laughs> um, so we'll, we'll talk about what San Antonio and Bear County did. Uh, it's very interesting. I think in principle, 
it's very problematic. I understand that it's it's symbolic pro- probably in practice, but it, it really matters because it could proliferate. Okay, um, I want to also say something about my cybersecurity e-case book, which is out there. Um, and then we need to talk about some immigration-related things. And we have a FISA FOIA clash of the four-letter acronyms starting with F. Um, and I think that rounds it out. And, and on the FISA point, we also have a story out yesterday that uh, that President Trump uh, doesn't want a clean reauth. that he actually is insisting that the House actually find some way to get FISA reforms as part of the, you know, the, the clock is running. The clock, which is why probably the most likely Ides of March activity is kicking this off. Like you six know. months. Yeah. The old, you know, maybe they want to come back to National Cupcake Day, push it off to next December. Hey, why don't they set it for like late October so we can do this right in the yeah? That's you know. Well, I mean, <laughs> right the, I mean listen, the Supreme Court just granted the ACA case and it's going to hear that in October. You know, nothing else going on in October yeah. 2020. At least we can bank on them not ruling until much much later. Well, there's that. Um, all right, so we got a lot to do, and then in frivolity, uh, we get to go finally into a timely review of a Picard episode. We got last week's episode to True. talk about. True. All right, I think uh, where do you want to jump and, in? And we'll always have American Samoa. <laughs> well, I guess you know what is uh, Bloomberg going to go vacation there now? I mean, you know, he spent he spent enough money. He might as well have just bought American Samoa for the amount of money he spent to get four delegates. So it's interesting to you know if we want to digress here, and for purposes of those who just want to hear the national security stuff, you know, skip ahead a minute or two. Um, I, there's a lot of people saying like, oh, what you know, what a waste, what a face plant, uh, the, the half billion dollar face plant. You know, here in Texas, we saw a lot of those Mike Bloomberg ads. You can't watch anything on YouTube. I'm, I'm trying to watch like guitar, you know, how to play this song videos. Everything's Bloomberg this. They were mostly, yes, they were touting him, but they were mostly also directed at attacking Trump. Right. And so I actually don't, you know, obviously his candidacy uh, fell flat. But insofar as at a time when there was a Democratic circular firing squad going on, he's focused on putting out advertisements attacking Trump. It's it's entirely possible that when we're done, we're going to look back on this and say Bloomberg actually was a positive force in the Democratic election process. Look, I think he played a pretty critical role sort of covering the moderate wing while Biden was in this uh, this chrysalis from which he just emerged yesterday yeah. or emerged this past week for South yeah. Carolina and then Super Tuesday, you know, this week. But I mean, if Bloomberg becomes the bank of Biden. Oh, well, I, I have to assume that's yeah. exactly what's going to happen. Yeah. Um, and because it's no it doesn't require a political scientist to know that what Bloomberg's looking for here is the defeat of Trump, but also the defeat of, of, you know, Bernie Sanders. Certainly he's, he can't possibly be enthused about that. So it's pretty obvious he's going to be the, the financial force behind Biden, which Biden, that was like the one thing he really needed was, was some big bucks. Well, anyway, well, uh, you know, interesting times. Yeah. So which one do you want to talk about first? Should we go into Trumplandia first or do you want to go down the road? You want to go down I-35 to San Antonio? You pick. All right. Let's start in San Antonio. All right. All right. So a couple of days ago, well, background. Many of the evacuees from abroad that, that the government, the federal government repatriated, uh, including especially from the Wuhan region, uh, ended up at various military bases like Travis in Northern California. And in San Antonio is a batch of them at Lackland Air Base. Now, last week, I don't know the particulars of how this unfolded, but following a uh, protocol that involved a requirement of two clean tests at least one person was released from quarantine there. That person went on to uh, the mall I went to when I was a kid, North Star Mall. Well, that's now got everybody cleaning North Star Mall because it turned out a, a third test was still pending and that test came back with at least a weak positive signal for infection. 
And so there was perhaps predictably a bit of panic in San Antonio and in Bear County about this. The city uh, initiated litigation, you know, purporting to try to get the CDC to uh, double the length of the quarantine period to 28 days and to take on further testing protocols. Uh, obviously, a reaction to the sense that they, they screwed up in this one. Um, that suit, I think, is, is already I think the initial uh, attempt at an injunction has already been rejected, if I'm not mistaken. I understand the the politics of this as well. The mayor and the city council and, and the county commissioners all s- need to be seen to be taking action. People are freaking out, and they've got to tamp down panic. And tamping down panic is a real legitimate government interest. I get that. Um, but they did something else, too. They issued declarations of emergency uh, under state law, under Texas law. Now, what's interesting about that is that it includes in the Texas government code under the emergency provision the governor can do it, but the state and local authorities, I'm sorry, the local city and county authorities can do it too. And it includes a provision that specifies that the, the mayor or the county leadership can uh, control movement of people into or out of the uh, the disaster area. And it's interesting because you wouldn't necessarily think at first blush, at least, that you could use it quite this way. But what they did was to, in the final provision of both the city and the county orders, say that anyone released from quarantine from Lackland Air Base shall not enter the city or the county. Full stop. And the, and the county has stuff about all the different municipalities within the San Antonio metropolitan region. But it's a blanket can't enter, not in my backyard for those who've been released from quarantine. So it's not a quarantine order. It's a post-release, not in my backyard order. Um, on, on one hand, there's something to be said for interpreting the statute to include this sort of authority because public health emergencies are among the many emergencies. It's not just hurricanes uh, that might be encompassed by a disaster declaration under state law. And as part of that, quarantine and isolation authority, of course, makes sense for a public health emergency. And one might say, look, this is just an extension of that, where you have where the leadership has reason to fear that there might, despite release from quarantine under federal authority, uh, be some lingering danger. They could impose a quarantine themselves. But how about a less restrictive measure saying, like, just don't enter the city? Well, okay, but think about what if every county does this? Right. What if every city and county in the country does this? And all of a sudden, you got you, you got to go out to you got to get on a surfboard and head on out to international waters. It obviously can't be applied beyond a certain point, or you have an impossible situation. Um, what I'm worried about is this idea that there's a lingering liberty taint on everyone, no matter how clearly medically right. conclusive it is that the person's either no longer a threat because they've gone through the cycle of the illness. Or because they never were infected, it turns out, after all. And the risk of panic extensions of these kinds of constraints, these kinds of control orders, which yeah. is basically yeah, what yeah. They, they are, to borrow the British usage. Um, and, and further, I think in this case, it was sort of an easy move because I don't think any of the Lackland quarantine uh, persons, quarantined persons, are San Antonio or Bear County residents. I think it just happens they're brought but there. But it gets a lot harder in a hurry. Absolutely. So, I mean, like, yeah. South by's coming to town. <laughs> well, right. The, we should talk about. Let me let me cabin that because that's a whole separate issue. What do you think about this idea that um, let's say you're released? From, you're one of these people. Yeah. And you're released from quarantine, and you'd like to go to the Alamo, pay your respects. You want to go to the Alamo, and do I'm, you, I'm less worried about going to the Alamo than like going to my house or my place of work. No, no. I'm assuming that you're you're not a resident. Yeah. So if you're 
Let, let's let's first talk about residents in San Antonio. I would think if you're a resident and you're told you can't enter your own city based on this, I think you've got a reasonably strong claim. Right. I'm not I'm not 100% sure what how I would style the claim. Right is to it, travel? Is it right to travel? Is it an aspect of liberty under the due process yeah. clause? Yeah. So is this a 14th Amendment uh, substantive due process problem? Maybe. Where if you're a resident, your interests are at, at their maximum. If you're just a, uh, you're a Minnesota resident who thinks, hey, as long as I'm down here, I really want to see, is there or is there not a basement in the Alamo? Um, I think your interests actually are relatively weak. As long, as long as you're actually free to go elsewhere. But these sort of categorical, you know, sort of control orders, right, don't don't account for the different interests yeah. of the people to whom they're they're applying. And so there's a real chance that if if we don't see much more of this, it's kind of no big deal. It's it's all political theater designed to tamp down panic. But we're we're going to see more of this, right? So if you get widespread community transmission everywhere, look, you're going to get local leaders under political pressure yeah. constantly invoking these pre-delegated, very broad emergency authorities. Theme of the show, pre-delegation of emergency authorities uh, depend for their uh, reasonableness on the, the, the virtue of the people using them. Yeah. And I'm not saying that Mayor Nuremberg in, in, uh, Berger in San Antonio is, is not a virtuous person or that he's panicking or what have you, but there's a dangerous principle at work here. And I'm a little worried about where this might go. Quarantine authority, great. Isolation, of course. These are core to public right. health. But travel interference. Travel interference for people who've been cleared. Right. That's a serious, serious further step. Not so sure about that one. And you also have the specter of different jurisdictions with different you know, constituencies. And so you could have chaos. Even in a world in which you're okay with that in the abstract, you could have chaos from different jurisdictions applying radically right. different rules in the same small geographic space. Now let, me, now, let me argue a little bit against my own point and imagine a different fact pattern where we have really heavy community transmission throughout Texas. But for whatever reason, imagine that San Antonio hasn't got really any community transmission taking place. Could they, in effect, bar everyone else from coming in? Can they self-isolate themselves to keep it out rather than coming in? Or to, to go to your example, yeah. could uh, could the city of Austin, you know, decide to keep everyone? It's right before Southwest and suddenly uh, Mayor Adler says, all right, in declaring an emergency and barring anyone from coming into our currently uh, untainted city. Uh, at what point is, is, there, is there an outer boundary legal limit on the ability of municipal leaders to do that? I mean, I think that the, the answer is yes, and it's either the state or federal constitution, but that's going to have to be fleshed out in court. Yeah, that could be some really interesting litigation at some point. I, think, I, think, I mean, I think we're heading for a whole lot of really interesting and, I think, complicated and chaotic quarantine and travel order litigation. I mean, we've already, you know, there was um, what there's now, there was a case of a, a lawyer at a, New York, at a midtown New York law firm, um, right? This went out around yesterday. There's a, a synagogue that's not going to be holding services. Oh, right. because, because he'd been somewhere? Oh, is this the guy? He'd been in, in Seattle, right? Yeah, or something like that. Something so, like that. I mean, we're, we're now seeing non-travel-related person-to-person transmission. And it's just a matter of time before just about every major city. I mean, you know, things are, my sense is, I mean, things are actually probably a lot more chaotic in Seattle than we appreciate. Um, but it's, it's probably just a matter of time before that's going to be true in a lot of other jurisdictions in the U.S. And New York may be next. And that's pretty remarkable. Spring break ought to be an interesting uh, test of this. So let me ask you this. So, I mean, I'm curious because in, in Austin, the really big question is South by, right? So, so we're what, a week and yeah. a half away from the beginning of South by Southwest, which brings tens of thousands of, you know, national and international travelers into a, a relatively small physical space in Austin. Yeah, I guess, you know, for my part, I don't have a ton of, sim- I know there's a, there's like a petition, cancel South by Southwest. 
Um, I think that's panic. I, I, I'm not saying that there won't be amongst the many visitors someone who might have the infection, but I, I basically have the view that community spread is occurring already. As inevitable. It is going to happen. So the idea that like, well, so therefore, uh, take a, you know, what is like a $50 million economic yeah, yeah. impact on the economy right. and just and, and take that hit on purpose in a way that speculatively may slow down, but yeah. but won't ultimately change the ultimate facts about community spread. I don't know. So don't know. here's here's why I'm torn. I basically agree with everything you said, but I also think it's very easy for me to believe that as someone who is not at risk and who is not you sure. know closely affiliated with something. Like, yeah. If we had know, compromised immune systems, obviously we'd be more Or if one of our children had a compromised immune system, or if yeah. we had a, you know, elderly parents. an elderly parent. I mean, like, I you know, it's it's... It's easy for us to be, I don't want to say blasé because we're not blasé, but it's easy for us to be relatively sort of circumspect. But look, this is all a species of that experience we all have in first-year torts where you realize the line is being drawn consciously at some degree of risk. Because yeah. if we don't want traffic accidents, right. then we just ban cars or all tires yep. have to be square and, you know, that sort of thing. <laughs> so we're taking some degree of risk. If we want to make sure that our, our more vulnerable right. populations, which are the really the only slice that's actually at, at fatality risk, it seems, as the data is unfolding. It seems, but I... People I, I, who have uh, pre-existing conditions. Yeah. I mean, that, that does seem to be the data. Yeah. Um, if, if what we want to do is take no chances with them, then there should be a complete travel ban, full stop. You right. know, no, one, no one comes. Not just South by doesn't come. Right. So we need a separate argument as to Close why... Close the borders. Well, exactly, right? So, and, and I think that that's too much harm. There are downstream health costs to, to taking huge hits to the true. economy, too. So I don't there, know. there's nuance here, and it's nice to say that nuance is not coming from the the federal public re- the, the public relations response from the federal government. Well, you you his name slipped me. There's, there's Fauci, Doctor Fauci, Doctor Fauci. Great, um, and let's hope that we can just focus on what he has to say. If he's allowed to freaking say it, yeah, yeah. You just you know you just set me up for that one. <laughs> um, I right, feel like so, I, sh- I should get an assist for some of these. So before we get off quarantines, I do wanna I do wanna say um, one totally random word about the movie Contagion. So apparently, which one is that? There's Matt Outbreak Damon, and Contagion. No, 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 Contagion is the really good Steven Soderbergh. Outbreak is cheesy. Contagion what? is the, you, the wait. Which one's the out? That's Outbreak the, is Morgan Freeman, uh, Dustin Hoffman. Dustin Hoffman, yeah. Uh, Donald Sutherland. No, Outbreak Renee is Rousseau. great fun. That that one's awesome. Yeah, but you know what's real? Hmm. Contagion. Right, so in Contagion, they actually got the science right. So Contagion is Steven Soderbergh. Um, it's what Matt Damon, Gwyneth Paltrow, Lawrence Fishburne, um, a few other people. Um, oh, uh, Kate Winslet, obviously. Ah. Duh. Um, Contagion. Contagion is basically this, and, and and but on like a worse, like yeah, a, a more a, more a, more morbid morbidity. A, a, a virus with a higher R naught, right? Yeah. With a with a greater more more mortality and morbidity rate, right? That. Um, and it sort of shows the progressive breakdown in oh, yeah. services. And so, okay, I may anyway, have to watch that. I'm, so, I'm not sure maybe this year is the year I want to watch well, it. Well, this might, is the thing. <laughs> one day. So it. apparently last so, – so someone wrote a story about its rankings and all of the services in which it's available. Is and how like through? last year no one watched it and this year it's like the second most watched movie thus far in 2020. I think it would be more fun to watch World War Z. Cause the, put, a little, yes. put a little uh, fictional distance what, between – Pull out all of our teeth? Uh, just, I think, I think that might be a little more uh, palatable. Watching something that's spot on for our current environment. No thanks. Yeah, fair enough. Or at least World War Z is at least more steps removed from where we are today than Contagion. I guess the bottom line is at least we don't have zombies yet. <laughs> oh, that, that that show title? 
this podcast well, we, does not have. Well, not, we can't uh, do it with the this yeah. is podcast. Oh, we, we, don't have, we don't have to stick to the this podcast. Yeah, we think uh, uh, at least at least there are no zombies. Dot dot dot. Yes. <laughs> okay. Or or have we reached the zombie phase of the no? Because that's, that's something like that. Yeah. Okay. okay. So enough. We'll we'll be back no doubt with. But more. speaking of the federal response, should we pivot to Trump to Trumpy Trumpiness? Yeah, Trumplandia. Let's go to Trumplandia. So, yeah, anxious anxious moment uh, in Trumplandia today. You know they did not want Biden. Uh, having seri- the surge. Not only did they not want Biden, um, there's someone else they didn't want who did okay yesterday, right? This is my favorite Trump tweet of the day. Uh, I just want to find this. Da, 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 da. Oh, I know who you're talking about. Oh, yeah, you you're do. talking about his former friend. I am talking about his former friend. So You're talking um, about... So Trump quote tweets a story from Politico about how Jeff Sessions um, is going to be in a runoff for the Alabama Senate primary with uh, former Auburn football coach Tommy Tuberville. Now, Trump is celebrating that Sessions is in a runoff, when in fact the real story is that Roy Moore did so terribly that the runoff is just Sessions and, Tur- and, and, and Tom right. Tuberville. Right, and he's celebrating the runoff in the sense that he thinks it's great that Sessions is having trouble <laughs> and is forced into the runoff, not that he's so glad that Sessions is in the runoff, as proven by... <laughs> His tweet, bless yes, me. Which says um, what? This is what happens to someone who loyally gets appointed... Attorney General of the United States, and then doesn't have the wisdom or courage to stare down and end the phony Russia witch hunt, recuses himself on first day in office, and the Mueller scam begins. Um, wow. Wow. Well, so, of course, the part that jumps out from loyally? that loyally gets appointed. In, in many ways, it's it's a brilliantly pithy phrase to summarize his understanding of... How appointments work? Yeah, how it works. And, and this sort of highlights this recurring theme that, on one hand... There's the unitary executive branch where the entirety of the executive power is by the text vested in the president. We've talked about, I, I know you have some quibbles with how far to read that language, but in general, generally speaking, it's a, it's a singular office, the presidency, and then we create these offices around it. And so there's there's sort of a, a deeper logic. And this is why, as we noted previously, John Hughes writing this book about the president as defender of the right understanding of the Constitution, etc. And yet... Who in the world wants to live in a world in which the, the mighty and vast powers of the federal government can ultimately be uh, wielded in, entirely, entirely subordinated to a loyalty test, a personal loyalty test to someone who so manifestly rejects rule of law values as as Donald Trump does. Well, apparently the White House does, because one of the other stories that I think got lost in the news yesterday um, or Monday is that the White House Office of Presidential Personnel is distributing a new survey or a new questionnaire to all prospective hires for all like government jobs that aren't just civil service jobs that include questions about like... Wait, do you mean the reverse that they're not just uh, direct presidential appointment jobs, but are all appara- civil so, service so jobs? No, no, not civil service jobs, right? So, oh, okay. So, uh, so can- more limited. Candidates applying to join Trump's administration will now to explain what part of Trump's campaign message most appealed to them and why. Um, this is one of, se- I'm reading from a CNN story. This is one of several Trump-focused litmus tests that's been added to a questionnaire that candidates for any non-civil service appointment across the federal government must now complete. Well, is that, okay, so I'm not sure how different that actually is. If we're talking about political appointments, yeah. 
I, my understanding is that in every administration, certainly in the modern era, there's a lot of focus on for political appointments yeah. on, by the way, uh, you know, we, our records show you donate, you know, there, I know for a fact that people get asked like, hey, it's a Republican administration. We noticed you donated money to a Democrat one yes. time. How do you explain no, that? No, so so uh, this doesn't sound too different from I that. Just, so I disagree. Right. And I disagree because I think there's a difference between testing whether you are, you know, faithful to the principles of the party. Right. Um, and whether you are loyal to the president as a person. So one of the new questions is like, what have you ever said publicly about President Trump? Right. Um, I mean, like there's it's, it's just I guess it feels but icky I, to me. I, I, I feel icky to me, too, because because I think he's icky. Well, there's that. but but if I try to disentangle that and just ask, is it is it a break with with the abstract approach to trying to ensure political allegiance and, and allegiance to this particular president. I actually think a lot of that stuff typically goes on. This sounds like it's maybe a, um, well, maybe the answer is it maybe, so maybe one of the answers is it shouldn't, but at the very least, right. If it, if it goes on, it should be, it should be political, not personal, I guess is where I, is where I think there's yeah, a well, distinction. Yeah, I guess. But, uh, I, yeah, you know, I, get, I guess I think like I can imagine a version of all these questions that are just part of the vetting process to determine for political appointees that the cabin of appointees, the, it's limited in cabin about, to those who are on this? the team. I'd, I'd feel better, right, if the questionnaire was equally focused on like competence and expertise in the relevant position. And I think and a part of what frustrates me about this is that they're asking these questions, but not, hey, have you ever actually had relevant experience in the job you're applying But to? then the pool goes down to zero. Well, therein lies the <laughs> <laughs> so speaking of that, can we talk about okay, yes, yes, Ken yes. Cuccinelli? Spe- <laughs> that's, oh, that's a good segue. I mean, that segue wrote itself. Yeah, it did. That was um, good. So, so, so your friend and mine, the not – so I, I want to say – Don't know the guy. I, I, I'm not. I meant that sarcastically. <laughs> um, uh, at Homeland Ken, if you, if you follow yeah. him on Twitter, because that's always a good, a good place to find mm-hmm. humorous takes. Um, so – I should say first, let me note on Twitter he refers to himself as the acting deputy secretary of DHS. It's not quite right, is it? That's not true. Even before this opinion, that was yes. not the. Uh... Even before Sunday, he was not the act. He he is the senior official performing the duties of the acting deputy secretary because the the time in which you could have an acting deputy secretary has expired. As many people pointed out, there's such a great office parallel here. That's just made, wait. I tweeted this back I'm in like, November. Hey, dude, I can't keep up with all your tweets. I'm just saying, I, like, <laughs> you know, I, I'm not, you know, I'm not a believer in cyber squatting. But man, I squatted on the Dwight Schrute reference. That's here, awesome. I mean, it, it is manager. spot on. Well, and Judge Moss, you know, used it in the opinion. So anyway, so this all comes. That's even wait. That's in the opinion footnote eight. <laughs> that's great. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I am in. I am. I am here for uh, office citations. Yeah, yeah, no. There is a whole office riff in the, so. So on Sunday, and by <laughs> the way, can I just awesome. note, like, can we judges? I love you. Sunday. Yeah, come on, give us a break. Yo. I mean, I understand this. Okay, just get it out Friday if it's that important. <laughs> yeah. Um. So Judge Ran- Randy Moss, who we should note, right, was a um, former OLC lawyer, and that's going to come up in a minute. Um, Judge Moss, district court in DC. Um, had a case where uh, these plaintiffs who were immigrants and immigrant rights groups were challenging a couple of directives that Cuccinelli had, is- had, had issued in his purported, and it's even in the caption, Ken Cuccinelli in his purported official capacity as acting director of Citizenship and Immigration Services, um, USCIS. And they were challenging the validity of those directives both on substantive grounds and on the grounds that Cuccinelli lacked the legal authority to issue them because he was not lawfully appointed acting director of CIS. 
just to remind everybody, right, what the government did to get Cuccinelli into CIS is they created this brand new position that had not existed before called Principal Deputy right. Director. To inject him into the line of to succession. To inject him into the line of succession. So he'd become the first assistant, right, to yeah. the deputy director, uh, to the director of CIS. And then he could become the acting director of CIS because he was first assistant. So under the Federal Vacancies Reform Act, he was the first assistant, yada, yada, yada. Okay. Um, Judge Moss, in a pretty thorough and kind of funny opinion on Sunday, um, says, yeah, no, um, that was illegal. Um, and in particular, Moss interprets the language of the Federal Vacancies Reform Act when it refers to a first assistant to mean it actually has to be first assistant in function and not just someone who the government just points at and says, they're the first. So the government can't just point to someone in the mailroom and say, they're the first assistant to the secretary. Yeah. It actually has to be someone whose function is the first assistant. So as a consequentialist matter of reading, that makes a lot of sense, has yeah. a certain appeal to it. What's, is there, how is the case made by, by the, by the judge? I like to, yeah. like to call the other Randy Moss. The other Randy Moss. Um, how, how does he make I, know, I do picture a Viking, someone wearing a Viking Absolutely. <laughs> this, this is like, wait, uh, Garth Brooks, right, showed up for a concert oh in my Detroit. God, so funny. Wearing a Barry Sanders jersey. Which, and Barry Sanders at Oklahoma State and, and beyond, number 20. So, and Garth so, Brooks, so Oklahoma State. A, a Sanders 20 jersey in Michigan. If people freaked out. People are dumb. People are not on, on the ball here. No, okay, so Judge Moss, how does he make the case that that's the best reading? Is there legislative history? Is there other statutory context? So, or is it just like, yeah. this makes sense? It's a little bit it of seems like it, I find that reading appealing, but yeah. I can imagine it not being the only reasonable reading. So it's, it, it is not the only reasonable reading, right? And so I think, I mean, it's worth stressing that here's the, he says the statute is unclear. This is a question of first impression. The statute's ambiguous, right? And so, you know, he has a pretty good argument, I think, for why this is the more plausible reading, because the alternative would be, as I said. Yeah, you could run away you know, with... Anyone could be the first assistant. Um, he also talks about, like, what it meant prior to the FBRA to be a first assistant, right, and the sort of the history of that understanding. Um, but it's also worth noting, there is a fallback argument that I've always thought was especially convincing that he says he doesn't have to reach because of his this argument, which is that whatever it means to be the first assistant, to qualify under the FBRA for appointment as acting whatever, you have to be the you have to already be the first assistant when the vacancy arises. No ex post. No ex post. No sort of retroactive frocking of a first assistant. Right. And, um, and it's got appeal too. Uh, and well, not as have an appeal. It was championed in a 1999 OLC memo by Randy Moss. How interesting that he didn't take the opportunity <laughs> to uh, you know catch his own pass to well, borrow the Randy Moss. You like that? I do. Yeah. But OLC so OLC reversed itself in 2001. And so there's actually a tension between two OLC memos about that particular I see. Reading. And so you don't want to, you're you're asking you're asking for trouble if you cite your own Reversed subsequently opinion, reversed right? opinion. Whereas this argument actually, you know, this argument stands independently of whether the first assistant has to be mm -hmm. the first assistant when mm -hmm. the Oh, that's okay. super interesting inside baseball. Thank you. All of this is to say, the, the bottom line is, so Cuccinello's appointment was invalid, which means these directives he issued while he was acting director of CIS were also invalid. Um, and there's a provision in the Federal Vacancies Reform Act that you can't ratify things that were done unlawfully by people who were appointed in violation of the FBRA. No kidding. That's interesting. Now, to be clear... They can turn around today and issue a forward-looking rule. Right, but they can't go back. But they can't go back. So, so the law is locked in. Now, I don't think this is actually that big a ruling because, one, um, for all of the ways in which the administration has twisted the Federal Vacancies Reform Act, they've only pulled this first assistant stunt for Cuccinelli. Right. So Moss's particular holding is Cooch-specific. Um, <laughs> but, two... Um, 
even the stuff, like, I don't think there's that much other stuff that he did in his capacity as acting director that has his name on it as opposed to other. So, you know, someone yeah. was like, does this mean the public charge rule is vulnerable? No, the public right. charge rule was promulgated by Mac, uh, McAleenan in his capacity as acting secretary. Got it. Although there's a separate pending challenge to whether that was right, legal. Right, that, that could be a problem. But this is an important shot across the bow. Like, you haven't been playing this trick again. Don't play this trick again. It'll be interesting to see if DOJ tries to get Appeal? it reversed. I assume they will. I, you know, I I don't know if I'm the if I'm the Justice Department, right? Is a couple of small things that one appointee did, right, worth potentially setting bad circuit precedent about the FVRA? I would say you'd you'd want to know, and we can't know, but you'd want to know: Are there discussions that have been taking place about using this same approach in other settings where they are trying to insert somebody into the chain yeah. of succession? If it's important for some prospective plan. Uh, then yes, probably at this point in the administration in, in the what may well be the terminal year, they may not have something like that in, in the works. We'll see. Um, speaking of it being in the terminal year with appointments, of course, we've got uh, the, the Ratcliffe nomination where you and I had actu- actually we anticipated. all of this. We anticipated what might happen with a, with a nomination. For once we got it right. This yeah. is what happens when we stay in our lane. That it would toll the otherwise soon-to-expire statutory deadline for Grinnell to be the act- mm-hmm. to actually have the powers of the acting director of national intelligence. Um, so we'll see. It looks like from all the early signs are, though, that the nomination will actually kind of proceed through this the Senate know. Select Committee process to get get vetted it's not, be it, it's not going to be killed quite as quickly as it was the first time right so so uh senator burr the chairman the what the co the chairman he's, of the yeah he's he's the chair he's chair, 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 and chair and vice chair right. for the intelligence committees inside baseball most committees are chair from and one party and ranking member from the other for the intel committees as a way to try to symbolize the aspiration that they'll be bipartisan ha! and ha! the way they they used to be Those long were the days. ago is chair and vice chair so um so burr I, I saw a snippet of a public comment he made the other day where he was not nearly as like um what's what i'm looking for skeptical um whereas like you know ah, things were different back then and i you know we'll see we'll 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 look carefully at this but i, I see no reason why this can't proceed well, yeah, proceed, proceed to defeat, presumably, but we'll see. Maybe. Uh, you know, Reckliff uh, presumably has not gained a lot of experience. Well, or but it's experience. not just that. I mean, one of the – so I just, it's worth – you know, it's so hard to keep track of the narratives. But one of the reasons why that whole thing died fast, it was not just his utter lack of experience. It was that he had misrepresented yeah. the experience he didn't have. Like, he had claimed to be like the lead prosecutor for a couple of high-profile terrorism cases that were prosecuted while he's in the office. Well, one of the many lessons about uh, collapsing norms over the past yeah. uh, four years or so is that there's a any number of things that previously would have been thought disqualifying for all sorts of public service that a lot of people just aren't seemingly bothered by as long as it uh, goes in a way they like politically or policy wise. And then B, even for the stuff that seems still pretty toxic, there's a decay rate for outrage because of the scale of other outrageous things and everything kind of gets subsumed. And well, maybe that was an old story. So therefore, it no longer has weight like it did before. That makes no sense, but it might be descriptively true. Um Okay, we've talked about the loyally appointed sessions. Uh, we should say a quick about. word, right? Friday afternoon, the D.C. Circuit, uh, other major rulings uh, decided the McGann subpoena case, right? So, uh, Oh, yeah. Now, that's a big deal. Um, we should talk about that. So, divided panel. We, we didn't really prep today very well. Um, no, no, this isn't, y'all. The recording is, is the prep. Right. I'm, like, I'm passing Bobby notes. Oh, we should also talk about like the Taliban peace deal. Oh, um, yeah. Those guys. All right. So, so let's do McGann really quickly. So, um, a divided panel of the D.C. Circuit Friday afternoon held... 
basically, Bobby, that the House doesn't have standing. Yeah, to enforce its own subpoena. Against Don McGahn. Um, even though Judge Henderson, concurring in Judge Griffith's majority opinion, agreed with every other federal judge right. who has ever reached the question that McGahn's actual merit argument that he has absolute testimonial, testimonial immunity is wrong. Um, I, I have many... Many problems with the DC Circuit's decision. No, it's, it's, I agree. It seems problematic. It, it can't be they don't have standing to enforce their own subpoena. I mean, I, I, so I understand. So what Judge Griffith says is listen. They're not saying political question, right? No. All right. It, it, reads, it, it reads like a political question. If it's case. justiciable, then someone needs to have standing. Somebody. That's and I, mean. I would think it would be the House. So, I mean, it's their subpoena. So I understand that the Supreme Court is allergic to what's called legislator or legislative standing, sure. right? Um, and in the paradigm case like Reigns versus Byrd from 1997, you have some subset of Congress, not even all of Congress, suing to challenge how the president is enforcing a statute Congress already enacted. And in that context, I agree. There is no freestanding injury to Congress. Right, that ought to give rise to standing. It makes perfect, even if it were all of Congress, not just a, a, a gaggle of Congress people. Um, this is not Congress suing the president over enforcement of a statute. This is Congress enforcing its own subpoenas, which the Supreme Court has repeatedly said it has the power to enforce. And here's the worst part. Well, actually, there are two worst parts. First worst part of the DC Circuit decision: Griffith says subpoenas to private parties are fine. So what yeah, is it so about, that doesn't even make sense? What is it then, about Article or? Three that says Congress has standing to enforce a subpoena yeah. against me? But but Don McGahn is a private party. I agree. That logic only applies if they want to recognize some kind of immunity for him. That's right. It doesn't go to the standing at all. I mean, you work for the executive branch for a short period of time. Like, does that mean that you have you know Congress That's, has no standing to enforce a subpoena? Right. Turns out, you? Steve, I'm totally immune to all legal yeah, process. Seriously. So that was the first thing that bothered me. The second thing is. Griffith has such a blasé attitude toward the alternative remedies available to Congress. He's like, you know what? This is not that big a deal, right? Congress could refuse to confirm the president's appointees. I'm like, <laughs> what appointees? The, that's the, well, and that's the Senate, not the House. So, right. What appo- Have you been watching, Judge Griffith? Um, but also, what appointees? Um, he says, Congress could, um, you know, defund the entire federal government. I'm like, like come on. That's, this, like, no, this is ridiculous. A nuclear weapon? And wait, Does he cite the sergeant in arms? So the best one no, is, or he- Congress could use its contempt power. Never mind that it takes DOJ to, to enforce, enforce it. So the only way Congress could actually enforce its contempt power today against a recalcitrant executive branch or former executive branch witness where DOJ is not prosecuting is to send the fucking sergeant at arms with his gun. So Griffith is saying, you know why we don't need standing? Because we can have an armed confrontation <laughs> between the House sergeant at arms and the Secret Service. Are you kidding me? Question for the record: Does the sergeant, the, as opposed to not for the record, does the sergeant at arms, uh, the historical record, uh, bear arms? Uh, the sergeant at arms is allowed to be armed. Yeah, I'm kind of curious. I don't know if he's constantly packing. Tell me, tell me more about this uh, this one man RoboCop who may have to go around uh, Texas Ranger style but, trying to I mean, do justice on his own. I, I just my serious question for people who don't usually agree with me is how is the specter of armed confrontation between representatives of the two branches preferable? to allowing the House to enforce its own subpoenas and litigating the merits of the immunity and privilege claims. No, it's ridiculous. It's a ridiculous ruling. Yay! I'm with you on that. Okay. You, you, get, you get one. All right. At least. Um, I, I'm just going to stop now because I've accomplished my goal. <laughs> well, it's too bad because we were going to talk about this FISA FOIA 
Uh, oh gosh, speaking ruined. of DC litigation. Yeah, so, so defining right. our terms for any new listeners, FISA, the Foreign Intelligence FISA Surveillance FOIA. Act, FOIA, the Freedom of Information Act. So FISA, FOIA. Not to be confused with the Foreign Sovereign Immunities Act, the FSIA. Or FARA, or the two FARAs. Or the two, there are two FARAs. All right. <laughs> there so, are five lights. <laughs> save that for the frivolity. Yeah, true. Oh, uh, that's awesome. All right, so really quickly, because yeah. I, I do want to sort of speed along a little bit. Yeah, I want to um, get to Picard. Yes, and we do, and we, we also talk, talk about, about this peace deal. Yeah. <laughs> um, so really, really quickly, uh, yesterday, I think, it's hard to keep track of the days, um, the district court in D.C., Judge Mehta, um, rejected a, FISA cl- a FOIA claim sorry, by the James Madison Project for Carter, basically the, the heart of the Carter Page FISA application. Right. FOIA, and, FOIA claim in this context, meaning uh, requiring or trying to get a statutory compelled disclosure of the document to the public. And the argument was that the Exemption 1, the national security exception to FOIA, was inapplicable because the White House had publicly said um, that these materials had been declassified by the president. Therefore, they were no longer subject to Exemption 1. Or, or, well, they, yeah, that, right. There was no basis for withholding them at all, even, even without the exemption. Right. Well, I guess it's intertwined. Yeah. So Judge Mehta says um, that would be great if it were true. Um, the problem is, is that what the White House said and what the White House did turned out not to be the same thing. And so even though the White House did, in fact, publicly say that they had declassified the relevant parts of the Carter Page FISA application, they actually haven't. So do we know exactly, when we say White House, yeah. who? Was it the press secretary? So was it Trump himself? You know, there, there, I think there were various public statements. I think none from the president personally, but some from like the, the press secretary and from other White House officials. So it's true, right? There's no statement by Trump, the declassifying right. authority, that I have declassified. Right. But the, the sort of the bottom line here, which... Makes perfect sense as an abstraction. Yes, that's... and and no sense as a common sense matter is that the government can be protected from having to disclose something through FOIA that they've told them, that they've lied to the public about declassification. Well, lie assumes they they lied about that on purpose. Certainly possible with yeah. this crew, or just it, but it could know, be a mistake. Misled. It, well, it could be a mistake though too. It could be okay. Fine, it could be. But all, the bottom line here though is that the government suffers no consequence for misspeaking, right. whether intentionally no, it, or not. This, this administration, this goes to the point earlier yes. about how things that used to be toxic seem yeah. not to be toxic because we're inured to it, or yeah. some people have decided they just don't care. This sort of nihilistic approach to governance that says, oh, they're all a bunch of liars. Who cares? I'm just going to support my guy. Um, I think that uh, there has to be a rule that that is open to the possibility of mistake on this. So you're not you're not hosed because someone who has authority to speak mistakenly claims that something's been de- declassified. Uh, if you could show and we could document that actually that was a cynical, false, intentional lie, um, it is very tempting to say that the remedy for that ought to be that you you therefore are held to what you said and FOIA away. But, this, but this that's probably I'm not I'm not yeah. actually attracted to that. No, I, no. What I'm attracted to is consequences, political consequences for the lying. Right. I mean, this gets to a larger problem so that there's almost never any consequence for wrongly withholding declassification, right? But that's a separate... That, that's yeah, a broader that's a deeper... Right, right. All right. Um, finally... Uh, well, there's, the Taliban peace deal. Peace! Of course, it, of course, there's no peace at the moment. The, well... There's immediately... A, 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 the Taliban have been attacking Afghan National Army and other Afghan forces. And then the United States has now been providing air support in, in collective defense, uh, unit defense of those forces. Uh, remains to be seen. Um, lots we could say, policy-wise... 
politics-wise about this. Legally speaking, um, do you have any objections to the idea that the president can unilaterally uh, strike these kinds of deals? It seems like kind of a core presidential activity to me, or core executive branch activity to negotiate peace agreements. Listen, I don't think there's no legal objection, right? Um, There's a question about the status of the agreement, right? Is it like, does it count as formally as an executive agreement with the force of sort of law, right? Or is it just an Mm -hmm. informal handshake thing? You know, that might matter for example, in the Guantanamo context, depending upon, you know, what, where we are when the... So, so that's what I want to talk yeah. about, about this. So we had a wave of this before. Yes. And, and this is actually on the, on the topic of things. They said this, but the meaning might be that. <laughs> um, we've had moments in the Obama administration, we had a moment where there was a, a declaration, I think from Obama himself, that was along the lines of, okay, the combat phase of operations are over. We're moving now into a, a support to the Afghan forces uh, sort of posture. And that precipitated at least some degree of renewed habeas litigation, and quite properly so, by those who wanted to test the proposition that there was no longer a state of armed conflict (coughs) in Afghanistan. And if that was the case, then we might be at the point O'Connor anticipated in her Hamdi plurality, in which she said, look, right now there's a a real deal armed conflict in Afghanistan. If not saying where else there might be, but in Afghanistan, there is law of armed conflicts applicable. And that carries with it the authority to detain for the duration of hostilities. Those who are combatants, lawful or unlawful, as in that case, but those who are combatants to their side. And so there's always been this question of this seemingly stable legal architecture of detention uh, that's built up through the habeas litigation, it all depends on the underlying premise that there's still an ongoing state of armed conflict. It's all law of war detention. Even the NDAA from what, FY12, that passed in 11, yep. that one just incorporated the law of war detention model and, and doesn't do anything to lock it in when the armed conflict's gone. And so anytime there's a serious basis to say that there's a need for a new analysis, you're going to get new habeas litigation. Um, this, what Trump is doing actually seems much more likely to set up that issue than anything Obama ever did, because Obama said things that sounded like end of hostilities, but the practical reality was a pretty uninterrupted pace of high frequency use of air power. Um, here, hard to see, hard to know for sure what's eventually going to happen. But if he withdraws forces at scale, and really does go down to a very small sort of a garrison force plus some sort of episodic strike capacity that's actually not being used very often, that's going to create finally a judicial opportunity to test just when the threshold of armed conflict is crossed, when a state and a non-state actor are persistently but very episodically using lethal force. Um, I don't think it's likely that the courts ultimately would say, all right, we're going to say there's no armed conflict and the detention authorities expired. But it's possible. And we could certainly get a district court ruling to that effect along the way. Yeah, I, I mean, I, that's the legal you know, output, right? I think there's also, I mean, I'm not wild about a deal that basically seems to create the conditions for the Taliban to just take over again. Well, they're right. That's interesting because, of course, a lot of people are drawing parallels to Obama withdrawing from Iraq and then the rise of ISIS that followed from that and then the need to go back in there. And plenty of people are saying, this is terrible. We're going to end up having to go back into Afghanistan once the Taliban consolidates or expands its already existing control in some areas. Um, and we could be right back to where we used to be. Um, and, of course, none of us know. 
We don't no, know. We don't, but we don't but it's know. a grave concern, certainly. And it's a but, conversation worth having. I mean, yeah. like just as opposed to, and apparently, and a lot of this was done like behind the scenes. Like apparently, you know, we learned about some of the the conversation between Pompeo and the Taliban from the Taliban. Yeah. But like, n- none of that bothers or surprises me. I think, in fact, these kinds of negotiations absolutely are kind of core secrecy matters to the executive branch. The negotiations are the the terms of the agreement aren't. Some of them always are. I think in these contexts, yeah. absolutely. Anyway, um, so suffice to say, I am not. I am fascinated by the potential legal consequences. I am deeply worried about the potential practical consequences. Indeed. I'm um, on the same page there. And it's certainly, we should all have the impulse to end wars whenever we can, but end them on terms that make sense for us, right? Not just on terms that allow us to end them quickly. Who could disagree with that? Uh, the President of the United States. Yeah, we'll see. All okay. right. Is, is, that, is that substance? Are we done? That is. That is. Okay, let's get frivolous. We got, we got through. Wow, we did a lot. In, uh, yes. Well done. I, I guess there's... Uh, oh, sorry. Can I do 40 seconds on the Supreme Court? Go. Okay. Um, so the Supreme Court also on Friday. Sorry, not the Supreme Court. I meant the Ninth Circuit. Um, oh, I know. How about let's make it 30 seconds for yeah. those. So um, um, the Ninth Circuit had this remarkable sort of confluence of major immigration decisions. Uh, I think it was last Friday. It might have been Monday. I, I, the days are so running together for me. Um, in one of the decisions, a divided panel put on hold MPP, Remain in Mexico, um, which is, I think, you know, one of the most significant and controversial of the current Trump administration asylum-limiting policies. This is that you can't cross to assert your claim. If you, you, to, you want to assert, to assert your claim, you Mexico. have to hold in place in right. Mexico. Um, and that was subject to an injunction, although it's now under a temporary stay from the Ninth Circuit. Um, and the Ninth Circuit also, by a unanimous panel, including Judge Fernandez, which I think is meaningful because Fernandez is not sympathetic, um, Judge for the, uh, uh, the announcement panel uh, ultimately affirmed the district court's injunction of the first asylum ban, the one that says you can only apply for asylum at ports of entry. Mm. Um, now, this one <coughs> made a little bit less of a headline because that policy was already on hold because it's one of the only immigration policies where the Supreme Court rejected the government stay application. This was the one, this was the Obama judges case. This was the one where Trump says, ah, those Obama judges are messing with me. And the chief clapped back and then voted with the lefties just to not stay, to deny the stay. Right. Well, we finally got to the merits adjudication like a year and two months later. And the Ninth Circuit on the merits affirmed the injunction. So um, two major asylum-related immigration decisions Neither of which I think are going to be the last word. Are, are those nationwide injunctions or are they Ninth Circuit specific? I think the asylum ban is circuit specific and MPP is nationwide, but don't quote me on that. Got it. Let me double check that. Got it. So, all right. Anyway, lots of stuff happening. Meanwhile, uh, out in space. Out, uh, out in space. Jean-Luc Picard. Ah, uh, yes. And a band of carefully misfits. crafted misfits that each have something unique and interesting to offer in their own personal style. Some perhaps with... Hidden agendas. What? I know. All right, so so you had been trending a little negative on Picard. I was enjoying it. But how do you feel after the most recent episode? All right, the last episode was better. Okay, what what, what changed There's it for you? more happened. And, okay. And more came together. And I have to say, did you know that was Hugh before the last episode? No, I didn't. I hadn't, I hadn't paid close enough attention. I knew there, he had been, right, the, there had been a Hugh flashback, I think. No, no, but he, right, the, the current And the Hugh character had, yeah. Had, right, but they had been very careful to not tell us his name. They hadn't said his name, yeah. And, it, I, don't, and I guess I should have I liked that. it a lot when, I liked the whole bid. You knew that was coming. There would come a moment where yeah. Picard gets to the cube. Yeah. Sorry, the artifact. The artifact. And, uh, and has, it has a lot of PTSD uh, manifestation yeah. and I thought it was it was really nice and it was a warm fuzzy fan servicey thing to have Hugh, Hugh. Uh, help him yeah. 
and and to and to you know kind of reflect back on that really nice warm fuzzy prior experience. Because Hugh had been in what three next generation? He had been in Iborg and then in what Descent parts one and two. I think that's right. Right. Yeah. So yeah, definitely a great callback character, and it was, it was well done to have him doing that role. And now and stuff is actually happening, right? There's actually now conf- like direct confrontation between the the. The the non Tal Shiar the the, the pre Tal Shiar Tal Shiar yeah yeah the the, the super the deeper the, state the, vat, the Zat Gosh the, the deep the I can't I can't do the actual name but it's the deeper yeah, Romulan the state deeper Romulan state yeah um, and Picard and the 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 former Borgs what, what did you call them he called them the the uh, UBs the X the XB? XBs 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 yeah yes. I think that's right yeah yes, that was XBs. pretty great. So I really liked all that. I thought uh, the continued, you know, Soji's continued self-revelation and the brother-sister battle over, let's charge down there. No, 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 let's do it slowly. Um, all pretty good. That all, that, you know, there's only so much cleverness you could have with this, like, sort of secret spy operation to use romance to get on the inside of her defenses and then get her to dwell in her dreams and, like, how convenient that the dreams are going to reveal some locational data. And, and, you know, you have to just suspend disbelief. And he's like, uh, look up. Is there a skylight? Do you see any moons that are unique? And, oh, great, now we can star map and find the location of the hidden oh, android base. I, I don't love you anymore. Yeah, exactly. I mean, so is it, isn't it clear where this is going, right, that, that Picard and, and, the, and Hugh are going to somehow survive the, the Jacques Gauche, or whatever the hell they're called, um, and there's going to be a race between them and the... You know, everybody's going to go to find you know go find the synths. the synth planet, and we'll find out if the Starfleet Pre- intelligence we'll find out if the Starfleet intelligence people are really Starfleet intelligence or if they're like double agents or triple agents. Do you think uh, they will also have because they they've really foreshadowed you know they keep saying like it's totally safe in the artifact because it's cut off from the collective. Uh-oh. Is it not? Is that not crying out one of these episodes for just a confounding factor to be like? Oh no! Someone threw the wrong switch. We just reconnected. Or they reconnect in order to, like, or as a as a necessary mechanism to fight off the Romulans. No right. way! They'd never do it. I'm just saying. No, I think I think it's going to be more of like, oh no! Oh some, Shoot! We shouldn't have gone in there and done just X. when I thought I was out. They pulled, they pulled me, back me back in. in. So the, and they'll do that just as sort of like an add to you know add an outside element, so it's not like a binary us versus them. There's also the Borg. Um, do you think? Mr. Data awaits on Synth World. Probably. I mean, they Although, got to. I, th- I think right? this. I think this week we we see Riker, right? Yeah, they. they I you know the previews. You know, coming yeah. next week they tell you like, well, this place they're going to go to. Where can I go? Classic. You know. Um, All I have to say is, hurry up, okay? Because I got to get ready for Westworld. Oh, I see. See, you're 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 biased in this. You, you don't. I want to drag it out. Yeah, well, I mean, there's that. But, but, you, but you've I got mean, too many how, shows. How many to episodes are there? Are there ten or are there like twenty? I don't know. Uh, Do we know if it's a one season only deal? I've not ever I, looked. I don't know. Yeah, if they want me to keep paying for CBS All Access, all right, there's going to have to be it, more of this. Stretch it out. Um, um, yeah, I really liked it. What do you think about? Did you like the Romulan Rubik's Cube? I, I did. Thought that was. That, uh, but that, but but that was so Nemesis, right? Cause remember in Nemesis, uh, Senator Valarum or whatever her Senator. Whatever her name is, the one who brings the who somehow sneaks the the fatal poisonous poisonous yeah. thing into the chamber. Of the oh, is there like the hidden? Uh, it was like a little thing, and then it opens, and yeah. out comes the failer on radiation. Uh, well, so that's probably a little bit of a, sh- a shout out. Then that's a little yeah. subtle call out. Yeah, nice. Or not so subtle because it's Romulans yeah. in Star Trek. Right, right. Just like people need to be have you know more TSA people checking your goods as you go into the artifact. Totally. Although I guess he could do what he wants there. Um, what do you think about? Um, oh God, the name's escaping me. Uh, the the woman who's the uh, the synth expert who's on the who who. Uh, oh, Alison Peel's character. Alison Peel's character. Right. So she she kills Agnes off Gerardi. Okay. Aggie. What's her What's her agenda? What's I don't going know. On there. I don't know. 
She they they set her up nicely. They they did a good right. job of making you think, oh, she's she's just she's just fluffy. She's yeah, she's she's very timid and vapid. She's, and and then she and then she goes all cold. Not vapid. That's not kill, right. She kills off her ex, and all of a sudden it's like, why? So what's going on there? I, I is she, is she working for Commodore O? Doesn't seem like it. Unless so, they're going to be like, well, they've got my father, so or they've so, got my puppy. So, I have but, to but, do so this. I'm question, sorry. Are all of these random little things like? Are they meant to sort of create? Things that are going to tie together, or are they meant to like? And hey, if we get a second season, maybe we'll. We'll have a thread we can go deep. Um, well, hopefully the latter. Um, I don't know. What do you think about uh, um, his his guardian, his Romulan guardian? What's the guy's name? The uh, kid. Merrick? No, no, the kid who's guarding Picard. Oh, uh, uh, I don't remember, but yeah, the, yeah. Uh, so far, not that exciting. Um, they conveniently have him drop in to swing his sword around a bit, defend Picard. Because after all, it's like, well, <laughs> what good are you? Um, I choose one, to live, my friends. I choose to live. I wonder if they're going to do anything interesting with him ever. So far, he's been a pretty one-dimensional character. I don't know, but on the whole, pretty good. I'm happy about uh, where it's better. going. I, 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 yeah. I'm less down on it this week than I was last. I'm week. certainly the the ultimate measure is: Am I looking forward to watching it again? Do I want to give it my time? Right. And the answer is yes, absolutely. Which is also true for McMillions for Academy right now. Yet another series I'm not even aware of. Limited miniseries uh, on HBO about the the McDonald's frauds, the the McDonald's monopoly game fraud scandal from the the, the late nineties and early aughts. Oh, <laughs> ah, I might check that out. I was really hoping you would say it was more McDowell's than McDonald's. Well, you know, I mean, they've got the golden arches, we've got the golden arc. <laughs> it's totally different. It's totally different. <laughs> Our buds don't have sesame seeds. There's due. This podcast buds don't have sesame seeds. Mm, I don't two, know. two inside. Yeah, you had a good one. What was the what, what was the uh, I wrote it down. At least there are no zombies yet. That seems like a good place to stop. All right, so uh, there will not be a third episode this week. Uh, well, we'll see. There will not be a third episode this week. <laughs> um, so we'll be back next week. Uh, regular bat time, regular bat channel. He's at Bobby Chesney. I'm at Steve underscore Vladik. We are at NSL Podcast. Stay safe out there. I guess. Adios. Adios. Maybe next week we'll do. What, March Madness? Uh, <laughs> that's a little on the nose. Well, indeed. Hey, Longhorn's going to make it to the tournament. Great. Yes. I'm so excited. And then there's the Yale Med. Bula Bula. What, are they going to... I mean, they're first in the Ivy. Huh? I know. We'll see.